Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for taking time and your interest. Hey, listen, I know like three Dan Habibs. I know seven <laughs> Mike Habibs. Oh, my uh, gosh, you know a lot of Habibs. All the Mike Habibs are either Orthodox priests or professors. <laughs> Um, you know, I had an uncle who was a Mike Habib, but he wasn't okay. a professor. So I don't know if that was him. I can't believe you know three Dan Habib. You're the first yeah. person to ever say that to me. The Lebanese community is very small in California, so everybody yeah. gets to know everybody. Well, although it's funny, just as an aside, my background is actually Sephardic Jew from uh-huh. Turkey. My dad's from Turkey. People assume okay. Lebanese, but it's funny okay. that with uh, a different background. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, how far is Turkey from Lebanon, really? That's right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's it, nice. Well, thank well, you. Well, people also forget that the rest of the world is a heterogeneous society. It's not homogeneous, but the way they think. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you got the name pronounced right. Yeah. That's a good start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, since your, name, since your name means love, and yeah. this is definitely a project of love, uh, sure. when, you, when you initially set out to do the documentary – what was your initial idea set forth, and how did I – w- I don't want to say narrative, even though it's still mm-hmm. storytelling, but how did the perception change along the way, and did you have to change your hypothesis at any point? Wow, those are three big questions all at once. Sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it. It's okay. It's all we only got 10 so, minutes, man. So. No, no, no. I hear you. So, you know, first of all, everything I do is drawn from my son, Samuel. So I did my first documentary was called Including Samuel, and it's about my son, who's now 18 and just graduated from high school and is going to college. Congratulations. Um, he, he, thank you. And, uh, and he has cerebral palsy. He uses a wheelchair. He uses a communication device. He has seizures. Very complicated young man. Um, but because Samuel uses a wheelchair, people often talk to him like he's a five-year-old just mm-hmm. because he has a disability. So his intelligence is constantly being underestimated. Mm-hmm. So that was that was really a, a big core part of this. And then I had some talks with Chris Cooper, the actor, and, and Marianne Leone Cooper, his wife, years ago about this idea that, man, you know, if we could just blow up the notion of, of that there's one narrow way, like IQ testing, mm-hmm. to measure intelligence, that would really advance the disability community. And, mm-hmm. and as you saw in the film, Chris and Marianne had a son, Jesse, mm-hmm. much like Samuel, had cerebral palsy, had seizures. Right. He passed, unfortunately, at age 17. But together, uh, we thought, maybe there's a way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's how we started taking this whole thesis out of, as Chris says earlier in the film, is there any measure of intelligence that can measure a person's capacity to contribute to the world? And really just challenging the notion that that can be measured. Mm-hmm. So, so the thesis started that way, and then the question became, how do you shift the paradigm uh, of intelligence? And part of it was looking back, which Chris narrates kind of the history of IQ testing and how awful the impact was. You know, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of people institutionalized, right. 50,000 people sterilized because of their IQ in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And then we had to find three I, I chose three paradigm shifters, people that could change the whole notion of what intelligence could look like. So that mm-hmm. summarizes maybe some of your initial questions. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I knew, I know this is attributed to Einstein, but I haven't read the official quote, so mm-hmm. I don't want to say he said it for sure because I haven't se- <laughs> seen it in print from an Einstein book. That yeah. uh, if you tell a fit, you know, everyone's a genius, but if you tell a fish to climb a tree, he's an idiot. Something along those I, lines, I'm paraphrasing. I've seen that. I've seen yeah. that quote. It's a great quote. Uh, yeah, exactly. So you need to find people's strengths. And I mean, every, <laughs> everyone has a way to contribute. You just have to find out what those are. Mm-hmm. And I know someone in a similar situation to your son. He's 30, He's uh, 35 years old, 36 years old. Uh, mm-hmm. He's in a, you know, he's on crutches. Um, mm-hmm. And everyone, and when they found out he was in school still, people were just like, Oh, and they thought it was a mental disorder, and I just looked at everybody and said, you know, he's getting his master's degree in mechanical engineering, right? Nice, nice. So. And isn't that amazing? Just because he's on crutches, uses crutches, and he's a physical disability, there's this assumption 
that somehow he's, he's has less intelligence. It's, right. it's, it's really ingrained in our culture. There's no mm-hmm. doubt. Uh, do you think this stems all the way back to the Hellenic period with the ancient Spartans? How if a baby had any sort of deformity, they left them on the side of the mountain because they thought they wouldn't be good warriors? Wow, that's a really great reference that I am not familiar with, but it, it sounds like a through line to pretty much the story I hear again and again, that you know, people with disabilities have pretty much throughout history, and in, in most cultures, but not every culture, have been seen as the other, and, and being hidden and, and secluded. And you know, there, there are certain times in our history, but even in our current day, there are certain communities where people with disabilities are still segregated and set aside. I mean, you have schools, separate schools, just for kids with disabilities. Right. You have separate classrooms for people with kids with disabilities. You have separate work settings called sheltered workshops just for kids with disabilities. So I think when people see in my film and Intelligent Lives, no, you've got a young man like Nair who has autism, who can barely speak, but he's a very beautiful painter. He is in a regular high school in Boston, Massachusetts, in an urban neighborhood, doing exceedingly well. And you see a guy like Micah who is taking college classes at Syracuse. He's teaching college classes at Syracuse. He's got this great circle of friends, and he's had an IQ of 40 from a kid. And then Naomi, you know, has Down syndrome, has a lot of communication challenges. She's got this wonderful new job that she got after being in a high school that actually were forced, doing forced labor, basically, making her assemble jewelry for no money. So a lot of documentary filmmaking is also showing the transition, showing the evolution of people's lives. And I spent three years, you know, with these people telling their stories. So how do we change this perception? Because this is a very powerful story. And I love what you've done with these people and brought their, their situations to light. I mean, art doesn't always need verbal expression. It's an emotion, so. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, you're right. I mean, I think first you have to get to people's hearts and minds, you know, and that's why I love the, the, the medium of film because you bring people into folks' lives. You bring people into the lives of these families, these individuals, and you, you understand their emotions and their struggles and their fears and their, their anxieties, but also their dreams. And I think that can really motivate people, especially people who are in a position to make change, whether they're policymakers, educators, college professors. I mean, you know, I want to reach everybody like every filmmaker does, mm-hmm. but I particularly want to reach the gatekeepers, the people that control, you know, employers, businesses. I want to reach them and see that this is this underutilized, you know, portion of our society that are being systemically segregated. It doesn't have to be that way. But then we also, with all my documentary films, we also do a whole take action campaign, kind of like a social impact campaign. So this one we're calling the Opening Doors Campaign. And we've got a whole section of our website, uh, which is intelligentlives.org, that people can just see tangible ways they can make a difference for people with disabilities in society. Okay. Because I know, you know, even in, uh, you know, able-bodied students, you know, there Mm -hmm. is the divide between the honor roll class and, and the, you know, regular class which I, I completely understand if these kids are, you know, six steps ahead to be to be segregated in that sense. But I remember growing up, they were always told they're better than everybody. Right. right. And I'm just like, that doesn't make – and I just started laughing when they used to tell me they were better <laughs> than us because I was like, no, you're the big dummy because it's the same textbook. You're just doing more homework. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, and, and frankly, I bet a lot of the students in high school, I mean, it's like everyone's measured in high school. It's like you're supposed to do everything well. And mm-hmm. then once you get out of high school, you can actually start to focus on things you particularly do well. Right. So I don't really understand why school has to be that way. I mean, it's good that people have opportunities. But I think that honestly, if, if there's a way to recognize people's strengths, even earlier, elementary school, middle school, and let them pursue those through internships, through, you know, community based learning. I'm, I'm a big fan of expanding the way we educate our kids beyond just sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day. Right. Do you also think that critical thinking classes should be taught much sooner than freshman and sophomore year of college? 
critical thinking in what in what sense? Well, just because when you get to college, you know, you finally take a critical thinking class about whether life or the environment or you know your your subject situation and intelligent lives, you know, and thinking and changing your worldview rather right. than just you know two plus two is four. Oh, you put five. Well, you're wrong. Yeah. You know. I think critical thinking should be ingrained in education from preschool. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think it should ever be actually separated out as a particular class. I, I believe a great classroom, you're doing that all the time, you know, in every class. And, and I think that can be taught in a way that's age appropriate from, from kids being very, very young. I mean, especially in a world where we're being bombarded with so much media and imagery and information. I mean, I've read studies where the average commercial impressions are like 2,000 a day for each person. If you just walk around the city or watch TV, right. you need to have critical thinking like ingrained into your brain from a very early age. And now how do we get those teachers in the classroom? Because, you know, we have the uh, the tenure system in California where after two years you're tenured and short of sacrificing a goat in the classroom, you can't be fired. <laughs> you know, uh, and a lot of them teach their own agenda and their own political slant, whether left or right, but this is California, so primarily left, uh, yeah. to these kids and indoctrinate them from an early age. How do we get actual open-minded teachers that will see multiple perspectives and help train these kids? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't give you an easy answer to that, but I'll throw a couple of ideas at. First of all, okay. I think it's like both from the bottom up and the top down, mm-hmm. in the sense that from the bottom up, you have to have university programs that are te- that are in te- getting teachers ready for quote the real world. And the real world is full of not just one kind of learner. It's full of you know not just students with disabilities, but English language learners and mm-hmm. kids who are more like visual learners or experiential learners or auditory learners. Mm-hmm. So there are some programs around the country. I was actually just in LA last week at some great universities like California. State Northridge, and they're teaching teachers that way to understand that you need to be ready to teach in the modern world, and, and you need a really broad bag of tricks to, to reach all kinds of learners. But then I think you need to be top down in the sense that I think leaders of school districts, principals, superintendents, they need to be passionately committed to creating school environments where all kids are welcome, regardless of their learning style, regardless of their ability or disability, and that we as, as educators, it's our professional responsibility to find a way to reach every kid. And then they need to support teachers and train them in a way that makes them feel like they're capable of doing that. So I'm, I'm not quite as skeptical about the teaching profession as you might be. I think there's some great teachers, and there are some teachers that need to be nudged, and maybe some teachers that ultimately need to retire at some point, but we need to replace them with a new crop of teachers that has this whole new frame on, on education. Right. Do you think that there should be a revolving door like every 10 years a fresh crop comes in with the new technology and everything else? That could be a possibility? Uh, I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so because I, some of the best teachers that we've had for Samuel have been very veteran teachers. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think just being veteran equates to being stale or, mm-hmm. or intransigent about the way you do business. I've had, he had a, a, a teacher in elementary school that was absolutely brilliant and she had been teaching for 30 years. So I think that if, if you can, if you, as long as you're willing to continue to grow and you have like a growth mindset and you're willing to evolve, you know, experience helps. I mean, I've been doing documentary for 30 years. I don't feel like I'm getting worse. I feel like I'm getting better at what I do. Right. And we just killed the concept of youth culture being the, the predominant ideology in this country with that statement. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> now, let, let's take a step back and go a little more personal for you, if you don't mind, sure. with your son, Samuel. Um, yeah, of course. You know, Samuel has dealt with his health issues and, and situations. And, you know, mm-hmm. God bless him, especially Happy New Year to you and your family. Uh, it just passed. Um, right. What struggles did you have to deal with for Samuel 
before you could start looking and investigating for Intelligent Lives, the documentary. Because well, this isn't well, really a yeah. three-year project. This is more of an 18-year project. At this yeah, point. that's a very good point. You're so so right. It's even a big through line. I mean, first of all, we are fortunate. I live in Concord, New Hampshire, and we, our community is an incredibly inclusive community. And the school system is it has inclusive education as its philosophy. So it really does believe that the starting place for all kids with disabilities should be in the regular school. That is not the case in, I would say, the majority of schools in this country, unfortunately. So we have that going for us. But what I think we struggle with was, first of health. I mean, Samuel's health, honestly, is the biggest thing that we are challenged with, you know, that at any moment he could have a seizure, that he could wake up and just be exhausted from all the medicine he's on or from, you know, just not having a lot left in his tank. And so that is a big issue. But I think we, we had we did have to work with the school district to really be innovative in his um, in his learning opportunities. So Samuel, even though he's going to college now, he can't read. He, he cannot read. He, his eyes have never tracked because of his cerebral palsy. They bounce around a lot. And so we've had to make sure that all information is available to him auditorily. He's got a mind like a trap. He remembers everything, but he has to have access to it auditorily. So we had to work closely with the school to make sure that was there. And then now we work with the community college where he goes to make sure he has the same opportunities. We had to make sure that before he got into a classroom, he had the language he needed to talk about physics or English or the Palestinian-Israeli peace process or, or conflict and it had to be in his communication device, all those words, so he could use them during class. That takes a lot of pre-planning and collaboration with the teachers. So, you know, we've had our own struggles, but I think ours have been mild compared to what I hear when I go around the country, and, and students are being systematically segregated as, like, a, as a starting point. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a rough situation, unfortunately. Yeah, it is. And it doesn't have to be that way because I, that's one of the things, again, I, I love being able to show in films is you say, here's what's possible. Here's what's happening in Boston or in Syracuse or in California. You, you could be doing this also. And you know what? This would not only be better for the kids with disabilities, it's better for the kids and adults without disabilities because mm -hmm. it creates a more diverse learning environment. And I think social and emotional growth has a, a larger lasting legacy on people as adults than maybe even the academic growth that they experience in school. You know, I ask that question a lot to audiences. Like, so when you think of who you are today as a person, what had a bigger impact on you in K through 12 education? Was it the academic experience or the social emotional? And everybody says the social emotional, but that's not how we measure schools. We don't mm -hmm. measure them by like, do you create these really rich, diverse, interesting learning environments? Um, but that's what makes us human beings, really. Right. And you know, it's unfortunate because I think we're even more divided today, not just politically, but socioeconomically and also the the notion of um, what's it called? Uh, entitlement. You know, I deserve yeah, this true. because I, you know, I said I deserve this. Right, right. And, you know, in the film, you do, there are some threads you probably picked up where Naomi, for instance, comes from a, a family that speaks hate, that speaks Creole. They're from Haiti. It's mm -hmm. the primary language. They're quite low socioeconomically. They live in an urban area of Providence, Rhode Island. They were told that this was Naomi's school. This one school where she was supposed to go to was the only choice. And that's where she was basically forced to do labor, you know, mm -hmm. in the school, which they didn't know. And there was no, there was not much communication back and forth. Micah's family, you know, God bless them. They're amazing advocates. They're wonderfully educated. They're very thoughtful, passionate people, not wealthy by any means, but they have the resources, kind of the, the social capital resources to make sure Micah, their son, had a fully inclusive experience, and he ended up going to college. So right. nobody's wrong. You know, nobody did anything wrong in the story, but, but a lot of their opportunities were limited by socioeconomic, by race, by ethnicity, and by um, language barriers. Which seems to be everything that's going on in the world today. 
Yes, it's yeah. true. We we could talk about that for another hour, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um in a sequel to to this documentary, just a hypothetical sequel, would yeah. you go international, you know, not just Canada or Mexico, but say, you know, to actually Haiti or to Nicaragua or Turkey or Israel or right. France, anywhere else, and see the difference. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, in a theoretical sequel, mm-hmm. I think that would be incredible, and I would absolutely love to. The reason that it feels theoretical is because I still live a very real life of being right. a parent of a child with complex disabilities <laughs> who needs a lot of support. You right. know, and, I, and my wife physically can't even physically like get him up in the morning, get him dressed. He's just too big, so I need to be around home a lot. So when I travel, we have a whole team of people at home that help out, and, mm-hmm. and it takes a village, really does. Mm-hmm. And, and I couldn't make the movies like I do right now, just really, to be honest, without having, like, Sam will have a really great support person that mm-hmm. helps him get to school in the morning well that's great has he decided on a major uh you know he's very interested uh maybe like i said he loves making movies he's mm-hmm. made some really great short films he's actually gotten into some film festivals with his films so he's interested in multimedia communication you know what form that might take i don't know but he's so far he's made a couple of really interesting docs and we're even talking about maybe doing some collaborative work uh, together in the future well that will be phenomenal uh remind us of the dates in the social media for uh, intelligent lives uh release sure. date and where we can find everybody yeah, so actually tonight we're in, uh, which is September 21st, we're in New York City releasing at the Village East Cinema. Uh, we have a week-long run here. I'll be in Washington, D.C. next week at the National Press Club, and then all over the country um, starting in October. So uh, intelligentlives.org is the website. Uh, Intelligence Doc, all one word, Intelligence D-O-C is our Twitter. We have our Facebook page, a very active Facebook group that's just Intelligent Lives. And um, and people, one thing I'll mention, that we're partnering with, the, with Gather, which is a theatrical on-demand platform, where people can now host screenings in their own communities all over the country. And they just go to our website, and within like five minutes and a few clicks, you can be hosting a screening in your own community, and we'll actually support you. We have a whole team supporting you to pull up a really successful uh, screening in a, in a theater right in your community. That's fantastic. And their website is gather.com? Uh, no, actually, just go right through intelligentlives.org. Everything okay. goes through our website. There's a host screening button right on the home page. Perfect. Thank you so very much, Dan, for your time. I know you're very busy. You're premiering in New York. I know it's like a three-hour train ride for you. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually here now. I'm ready to oh, go. Even better. So now at least yeah. you'll get you know a 20-minute nap before showtime. I hope so. Great. Well, I really appreciate your very thoughtful questions, and it was great to talk with you. Thank you, and good luck with the documentary and uh, everything else that you put out in the near future. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.